I think that a Selden crisis is pending, and that if it isn't, then away with the Selden plan altogether. It is a failure. There has come word of a strange man whom they call the Mule. The Mule? There is another that I flee, and he is a storm that sweeps the worlds aside and throws them plunging at each other. By the dust clouds of space, the Foundation will win. The Foundation must win. Magnifico. Before beginning this episode of Selden Crisis, please be advised that this is an independently created podcast and is not meant to be a substitute for reading the books, nor is it affiliated with the family or estate of Isaac Asimov. Hi friends, and welcome to the first of what I expect to be the most amazing set of episodes in the entire epic. Before getting into it, though, I want to explain something that may seem a little peculiar in my approach to exploring this story. I've said that this isn't intended to be an alternative to reading the story, and I assume the vast majority of my listeners have read it at some time in their lives. If you still haven't cracked open the original trilogy or listened to an audiobook, I suggest you get right on that. This is Asimov's story, not mine, and the last thing I want to deprive you of is the joy of reading every single word the good doctor wrote. So this is Reader's Companion, and you already know the story. Then why do I have a no-spoiler policy? The answer has something to do with the way my brain works, and I assume I'm not unique in this respect. I have an ability to selectively forget what I want to in the service of enjoying the drama of a great story. Several decades had passed between when I first read it as a teenager and the time of reading it again last summer, and I had no trouble forgetting some really important revelations that occur in this story. I had no trouble because I really wanted to be surprised all over again, and it worked. If you've read this particular portion of the story fairly recently, you may have a hard time doing that, but I'm going to keep with the no-spoiler policy regardless for those who may not remember all of the big moments to come. So, who is this mule guy who you may have heard something about? I'll start by reading the very small entry from the Encyclopedia Galactica that begins the chapter. Quote, The Mule. Less is known of the mule than of any character of comparable significance to galactic history. Even the period of his greatest renown is known to us chiefly through the eyes of his antagonists, and principally through those of a young bride. Encyclopedia Galactica. End quote. Not much to go on there, is there? Let's start then with that young bride. Her name was Beta, and she was raised on Terminus and went to the university there, where she met a man by the name of Torin Durell, who would later become her husband. Torin was an off-worlder who had gone to Terminus for his education. He was from a trading colony called Haven, and the story begins with the recently married young couple going to this remote planet to meet Torin's grizzled, one-armed trader father, Fran, and his half-brother, Randu. Perhaps before we get much further, we should set a little context. It appears about a century has passed since the end of the Foundation's great victory over the Empire, and some interesting developments have transpired in Foundation governance. We'll hear more about this later, but suffice it to say that the democratic process under Salvor Hardin and Hober Mallow, corrupted as it may have been under those two benevolent despots, is long a thing of the past. The mayor of Terminus is now effectively a king, if not an emperor himself. 
Why this is important is that Beta and Turan were, like a lot of college kids, turned on by the thrill of activism against their oppressors, and met through their mutual interests in a more enlightened and free society someday. This will play a major part in our story going forward. As we begin, Turan is excitedly and a little nervously introducing his young bride to his homeworld for the first time, a trading colony called Haven, where it appears most, if not all, of the populace lives underground. He's also a little nervous about introducing her to his dad. Beta does her best to settle her husband's anxiety upon first entering the main habitat, gushing. Why, Torin, it's beautiful, Turan replies. Well now, Bay, it's not like anything on the foundation, of course, but it's the biggest city on Haven, too. 20,000 people, you know, and you'll get to like it. No amusement palaces, I'm afraid, but no secret police either. Apparently, the two lovers were active enough in the Foundation underground to be well aware and concerned about security personnel on Terminus. Oh, Tori, it's just like a toy city. It's all white and pink and so clean. Bay, there's Dad, right there, where I'm pointing, Tilly. Don't you see him? Beta spots the one-armed trader and his brother Randu hurrying to meet them, and introductions are made. Fran is the older of the two by several years and appears the worse for wear, as evidenced by his missing arm. He's also a bit of a misogynist who doesn't hide the displeasure he feels at his son going off and getting married. In his mind, a wife can only be a burden to a traitor, and he's happy to voice his opinion on this matter often. Seeing Beta, he appraises his son's catch with a sharp eye and makes an effort at a civil introduction, saying, Call me Fran. Till now, I never did think my boy knew what he was ever up to. I think I'll change that opinion. Yeah, I think I'll change that opinion. Beta sees Torin's father's sharp eye and responds, I know what you're trying to estimate, and I'll help you. Age, 24. Height, 5'4". Educational specialty, history. Fran's brother, Randu, is introduced, and it seems he shares more in common with the young couple. It appears everyone on Haven is suspicious of those from Foundation, as the trading worlds are semi-autonomous and have to pay heavy taxes on their profits. Randu is one of the leaders of a group that would love to make connections with the Foundation underground, and now has a chance to do just that. After getting settled at the family home, while Beta is off getting comfortable with her surroundings, Fran confides to his son, Well, you're home, boy, and I'm glad you are. I like your woman. She's no whining ninny. I married her. Well, that's another thing altogether, boy. It's a foolish way to tie up the future. In my longer life and more experienced, I never did such a thing. Turan defends his decision to marry, and after Beta rejoins them for the evening meal, Randu asks her, You have studied history, my girl. I was the despair of my teachers, but I learned a bit eventually. A citation for scholarship, that's all. And what did you learn? What do you think of the galactic situation? I think that a Selden crisis is pending, and that if it isn't, then away with the Selden plan altogether. It is a failure. Why do you say that? I went to the Foundation, you know, in my younger days, and I too once thought great dramatic thoughts. But now why do you say that? Well, it seems to me that the whole essence of Selden's plan was to create a world better than the ancient one of the Galactic Empire. 
It was falling apart, that world, three centuries ago when Selden first established the foundation. And if history speaks truly, it was falling apart of the triple disease of inertia, despotism, and maldistribution of the goods of the universe. Beta reminds them, and we the readers, of how Hari Selden developed the science of psychohistory, which could predict future events with great accuracy based on statistical probabilities just as one could predict the behavior of a large enough aggregate of atoms using the laws of physics. Selden predicted a series of crises through the thousand years of growth, each of which would force a new turning of our history into a pre-calculated path. It is those crises which direct us, and therefore a crisis must come now. Now. It's almost a century since the last one. And in that century, every vice of the empire has been repeated in the foundation. Inertia? Our ruling class knows one law, no change. Despotism? They know one rule, force. Maldistribution? They know one desire, to hold what is theirs. While others starve, girl, your words are pearls. The fat guts on their money bags ruin the foundation, while the brave traders hide their poverty on dregs of worlds like Haven. It's a disgrace to Selden, a casting of dirt in his face, a spewing in his beard. If I had my other arm, if once they had listened to me... Turan does his best to calm him down. Dad, take it easy. Take it easy, take it easy. We'll live here and die here forever, and you say, take it easy. Randy tries to change the subject by referring to a figure well-known from our last episode. That's our modern Lathan Devers, this friend of ours. Devers died in the slave mines 80 years ago with your husband's great-grandfather because he lacked wisdom and didn't lack heart. Yes, by the galaxy, I'd do the same if I were he. Devers was the greatest traitor in history, greater than that overblown windbag, Mallow, the Foundationer's Worship. If the cutthroats who lord the foundation killed him because he loved justice, the greater the blood debt owed them. This is a fascinating little bit of lore to ponder for a moment. When we took our leave of Lathan Devers at the end of the general, he was, if anything, a genuine war hero. True, he and Dusambar didn't really affect matters significantly on their frantic mission to Trantor to attempt to undermine General Belriose's attack on the foundation but one would think he would have held a position of high standing for his noble and truly heroic efforts. Why then would he have died, quote, in the slave mines, end quote, at the hands of, quote, the cutthroats who lord the foundation, end quote. Asimov seems to have a fondness for these sort of cryptic references. Recall Onambar's daughter's suicide and how it implied an entire unexplained side story. In this case, the consignment of a former war hero along with Torin's great-grandfather to a Foundation slave mine, let alone why the Foundation would have slave mines at all, could be the kernel at the heart of a great untold story. But back to the one we must tell now. Randu settles the old man's passions by turning Beta's attention to the problem at hand. We've formed a little group, Beta, just in our city. We haven't done anything yet. We haven't even managed to contact the other cities yet, but it's a start. But towards what? We don't know yet. We hope for a miracle. We have decided that, as you say, a Selden crisis must be at hand. The galaxy is full of the chips and splinters of the broken empire. The generals swarm. Do you suppose the time may come when one will grow bold? 
No, not a chance. There's not one of those generals who doesn't know that an attack on the foundation is suicide. Belriose of the old empire was a better man than any of them, and he attacked with the resources of a galaxy and couldn't win against the Selden plan. Is there one general that doesn't know that? Well, there is one, a new one. In this past year or two, there has come word of a strange man whom they call the Mule. The Mule? Ever hear of him, Tori? No, I haven't. What makes him different, Uncle? I don't know. But he wins victories at, they say, impossible odds. The rumors may be exaggerated, but it would be interesting in any case to become acquainted with him. Not every man with sufficient ability and sufficient ambition would believe in Hari Selden and his laws of psychohistory. We could encourage that disbelief. He might attack. And the Foundation would win. Yes, but not necessarily easily. It might be a crisis, and we could take advantage of such a crisis to force a compromise with the despots of the Foundation. At the worst, they would forget us long enough to enable us to plan farther. We see here that the philosophy of Dusambar, as expressed in the general, that the unstoppable tide of psychohistory would always make the Foundation victorious over its enemies, had now become popular wisdom. The stunning and complete triumph over the Empire 100 years in the past had created a sense of manifest destiny for the Foundation. In a nutshell, then, Randu's plan is to make an alliance with the Mule and encourage him to attack the Foundation. The ensuing battle would inevitably result in Foundation victory, but in the chaos resulting, Randu's underground could plan for a better future that resolves some of the structural problems of Foundation corruption and authoritarianism. Randu and Fran enlist Beta and Toran to go on a vacation world called Kalgan on a honeymoon. The mule had recently taken control despite the opposition of a powerful warlord who claimed he would, quote, blow the planet to ionic dust, end quote, rather than give up. But he mysteriously disappeared and the mule took the planet without a fight. Their plan is for the honeymooners to get information, make contact with the mule or his people if possible. This is kind of funny if you think about it. We tend to think of a honeymoon as a time of total relaxation after the stress of preparing for a wedding and before all the work that goes into beginning a marriage. Honeymooners aren't typically asked to be secret agents attempting to make contact with a mysterious world-conquering general. It might help to remember that Asimov himself saw no value in vacations. First off, he hated traveling or anything else that would disrupt his work of nonstop writing. He was known to never travel by air, and when reluctantly was coerced into taking a few ocean cruises, was known to stay on board the ship while it was in port, while his wife Janet would explore the vacation sites, so he could be left to his work. The stateroom became just a traveling office for him. We can see why he'd be a little out of touch with the societal understanding of what a honeymoon was supposed to be. And so we leave the young couple to go off on their combined honeymoon-slash-secret-agent adventure and turn our attention to the Foundation homeworld of Terminus. In the anteroom, within a stately and impressive edifice on Terminus, a young military officer, Captain Han Pritcher, awaits an audience with his eminence, the leader of all Foundation, but who bears the simple title of Mayor Indber of Terminus City, an affectation of pretended humility hearkening back to the days of Salvo Hardin. Despite appearances, 
Mayor Indber is known by all to be the most powerful figure in the galaxy. This particular Mayor Indber was the last of three generations to bear this name. The first had been both brutal and capable, and had used these traits to presumably break the back of the trading plutocracy and establish an authoritarian style of government. We can assume that, if not he directly, his brutal policies had banished our old friend Lathan Devers to the slave mines. The second Inber had not been nearly as brutal, but had capably institutionalized the authoritarian structure bequeathed by his father. The third Inber, as we shall see, was neither brutal nor capable. He was, in Asimov's words, quote, an excellent bookkeeper born wrong. To him, a stilted geometric love of arrangement was system, an indefatigable and feverish interest in the pettiest facets of day-to-day bureaucracy was industry. Indecision when right was caution, and blind stubbornness when wrong, determination. And withal, he wasted no money, killed no man needlessly, and meant extremely well. End quote. The captain who has been summoned by Inber is an intelligence officer with a stubborn streak, a firm belief in the value of insubordination in, quote, the interest of the state, end quote. He expects nothing less than to be court-martialed for his latest activities that had willfully defied his superior's orders for what he believed to be essential reasons. Indber makes him wait a little longer while he scribbles some annotations, then has him brought before him, where Pritchard respectfully bends to one knee before him. Arise, Captain Pritchard! The mayor goes on to refer to the disciplinary actions committed by the captain and asks if he is surprised to be brought to his audience. Pritchard calmly responds, Excellence, no, your justice is proverbial. Inber proceeds to read off a detailed list of biographical details. Age 43, born on Loris of Anacreonian parents, 310 years after Selden's exile to Terminus. All of this detail simply to impress upon Pritchard the mayor's thoroughness. You see, in my administration, nothing is left to chance. Order. System. We are given one more detail of the mayor's fastidious nature, in that his only vice is the periodic ingestion of a tiny pink flavor capsule, as the mayor does not smoke. I've commented at length upon Asimov's fondness for the use of tobacco products in this story, and I was quite surprised to find out upon reading his biography that he didn't just not smoke himself, but detested the habit. This was a source of significant strain in his problematic first marriage to Gertrude. Perhaps he felt the need to give this rather odious character, Inber, one small redeeming quality. The mayor looks up from the report before him. Well, Captain, your record is unusual. Your ability is outstanding, it would seem, and your services valuable beyond question. I note that you have been wounded in the line of duty twice, and that you have been awarded the Order of Merit for bravery beyond the call of duty. Those are facts not lightly to be minimized. However... You have not been promoted in ten years, and your superiors report over and over again of the unbending stubbornness of your character. You are reported to be chronically insubordinate, incapable of maintaining a correct attitude towards superior officers, and apparently uninterested in maintaining frictionless relationships with your colleagues, and an incurable troublemaker besides. How do you explain that, Captain?' Pritcher responds in what he hopes will be a respectful tone. Excellence, I do what seems right to me. 
My deeds on behalf of the state and my wounds in that cause bear witness that what seems right to me is also in the interest of the state. When asked what gives him the privilege of disobeying the orders of a superior, Pitcher explains, Excellence, my duty is primarily to the state and not to my superior. Fallacious, for your superior has his superior, and that superior is myself, and I am the state. Where have we heard something like this before? Why, all the way back in the Encyclopedists, with the haughty attitude of the Anacreonian envoy Anself Hot Roderick. Pritchard introduces an important finding of his work on behalf of the state. In his mission to examine the intentions of the warlord of Calgan, an ambitious and powerful figure who had risen quickly to power and assembled a formidable military fleet, but had heretofore been essentially friendly to the Foundation. Excellence, I returned two months ago. At that time, there was no sign of impending war, no sign of anything but an almost superfluity of ability to repel any conceivable attack. One month ago, an unknown soldier of fortune took Calgan without a fight. The man who was once warlord of Calgan is apparently no longer alive. Men do not speak of treason. They speak only of the power and genius of this strange condottiere, this mule. This who? Excellence, he is known as the mule. He is spoken of little in a factual sense, but I have gathered the scraps and fragments of knowledge and winnowed out the most probable of them. He is apparently a man of neither birth nor standing, his father unknown, his mother dead in childbirth, his upbringing, that of a vagabond, his education, that of the tramp worlds and the backwash alleys of space. He has no name other than that of the mule a name reportedly applied by himself to himself, and signifying, by popular explanation, his immense physical strength and stubbornness of purpose. Indber asks Pritcher of the mule's military strength, and the captain says he hears of, quote, huge fleets, unquote, but thinks these reports might be influenced by the results of his engagements more than any precise knowledge. Inber appears entirely uninterested in these reports and brings the subject back to Pritchard's insubordination. He is now ordering him to investigate the trader worlds that are refusing to pay their taxes, but Pritchard reminds him that they are unimportant and not a serious threat. Inber differs because these, quote, rat hole worlds, end quote, offend his sense of order and control. Pritchard makes his earnest plea. Excellence, I have been told all this. But as servant of the state, I must serve faithfully, and he serves most faithfully who serves truth. Whatever the political implications of these dregs of the ancient traders, the warlords who have inherited the splinters of the old empire have the power. The traders have neither arms nor resources. They have not even unity. I am not a tax collector to be sent on a child's errand." Inber reminds Pritchard of the previous Selden crises and how they had proved the inevitability of Foundation success, that the warlords and remnants of Empire have proven their impotence. He seems only concerned about cleaning up these messy rat holes. Pritchard reminds Inber of the great cost of the battle against Belriose. Excellence, that is true, but this history you mentioned became inevitable only after we had fought desperately for over a year. The inevitable victory we won cost us half a thousand ships and half a million men. Excellence, Selden's plan helps those who help themselves. Asimov does seem to love this phrase. 
Edward grows impatient. Nevertheless, Captain, Selden guarantees victory over these warlords, and I cannot in these busy times indulge in a dispersal of effort. These traitors you dismiss are foundation-derived. A war with them would be a civil war. Selden's plan makes no guarantee there for us, since they and we are foundation, so they must be brought to heel. You have your orders. Pritchard returns to his barracks to find a sealed order from the mayor, instructing him in the strongest terms to proceed to Haven to investigate the traitors. Asimov describes his response as follows. Quote, Captain Hound Pritchard, alone in his light one-man speedster, set his course quietly and calmly for Calgan. He slept that night the sleep of a successfully stubborn man. End quote. Now we return to the young lovers on their honeymoon, basking in the sun on the famous beaches at Calgan. They're enjoying themselves somewhat, but like the author, would prefer to be working, which in this case means making contact with the mysterious figure who has quietly overtaken this world. They've made no progress whatsoever in that regard. Down the beach a little way, they see a curious interaction. A thin and gangly acrobat is doing a handstand for the crowd's amusement. A beach guard tries to make him move off, and the clown takes one hand, places his thumb to his nose while still upside down. The guard is enraged and approaches only to be kicked forcefully in the gut by the clown, who then runs off protected by the crowd, cackling with delight. Beta sees him approaching and says, He's a queer fellow. When the entertainer gets closer, they get a better look at him. In Asimov's words, quote, the clown was close enough now to be seen clearly. His thin face drew together in front into a nose of generous planes and fleshy tip that seemed all but prehensile. His long, lean limbs and spidery body, accentuated by his costume, moved easily and with grace, but with just a suggestion of having been thrown together at random. To look was to smile. The clown comes directly to Beta and earnestly proclaims, were I to use the wits the good spirits gave me, then I would say this lady cannot exist. For what sane man would hold a dream to be reality? Yet rather would I not be sane and lend belief to charmed, enchanted eyes. Wow. Torin laughs. Oh, you enchantress. Go ahead, Bay. That deserves a five-credit piece. Let him have it. No, my lady, mistake me not. I spoke not for money at all, but for bright eyes and sweet face. Torin, maybe just a little peeved, says, Will five credits cure your trouble? Let me talk to him, Tori. There's no use being annoyed at his silly way of speaking. That's just his dialect, and our speech is probably as strange to him. Speaking to the clown, she asks sweetly, What is your trouble? You're not worried about the guard, are you? He won't bother you. Oh no, not he. He's but a windlet that blows the dust about my ankles. There is another that I flee. And he is a storm that sweeps the worlds aside and throws them plunging at each other. A week ago I ran away and have slept in the city streets and hid in city crowds. I've looked in many faces for help in need. I find it here. I find it here. The beach guard that Beta had dismissed so easily apparently had other ideas, for he suddenly reappeared and with a red face snarl shouts, Hold him, you two! Torin breaks in. What's he done? What's he done? What's he done? No, well, now that's good. Now, I'll tell you what he's done. He's run away. Now, where did he escape from, sir? 
Where did he escape from? Why am I, I suppose you've heard of the mule now. Asimov describes the moment. Quote, All jabbering stopped, and Beta felt a sudden iciness trickle down into her stomach. The clown had eyes only for her. He still quivered in the guard's brawny grasp. End quote. And who would this infernal ragged piece be but his lordship's own court fool who's run away? But Torin, so recently annoyed at the clown's intrusion, now found himself defending him. Now, my man, suppose you take your hand away for just a while. This entertainer you hold has been dancing for us and has not yet danced out his fee. The guard ignores Torin and prepares to haul him away, at which point Torin's decide the moment has arrived to play the foundation card. He suddenly grabs the man's stun pistol and shoves him violently aside. Standing firm with the pistol unwavering, he demands that the guard allow him to keep the entertainer with them and declares his rights as a citizen of the Foundation. A new figure arrives on the scene, a tall lieutenant who reminds Torin that his behavior is highly illegal and demands he turn over the clown immediately, claiming he could have Torin shot for failing to comply. Torin holds his ground. Undoubtedly, but then you would have shot a Foundation citizen, and it is quite likely that your body would be sent to the Foundation, quartered, as part compensation. It's been done by other warlords. The lieutenant paused, realizing the statement is true, then asked for Torin's name. I will answer further questions at my ship. You can get the cell number at the hangar. It is registered under the name Beta. When asked once more if he would release the runaway, he responds fiercely. To the mule, perhaps. Send your master. When the crowds had been dispersed and the lieutenant and the guard had withdrawn, Torin turned to Beta as they made their way back to the hangar with their new acquaintance. Galaxy Bay. What a time I had. I was so scared. Yes, it was quite out of character. Well, I still don't know what happened. I just got up there with a stun pistol that I wasn't even sure I knew how to use and talked back to him. I don't know why I did it. The hangar in which Torin's spaceship, the Beta, was parked was much more than the kind of facility referred to as such at a modern airport. Asimov describes it as more of a huge hotel in which each room was its own deluxe accommodation for spacecraft and crew, with all facilities to stay indefinitely or depart to space at will. It's almost as if the travel averse Asimov was describing his dream port makes you wonder if he and his wife had had the option of availing themselves of such a facility on their honeymoon if he would have ever left the hangar. We find the travelers hutted in the security of their ship with their strange new acquaintance, who had introduced himself with the bombastically inflated name of Magnifico Giganticus. He was now gulping down provisions in the ship's galley as if he had gone some time without a meal. While the clown is thus distracted, Beta asks her husband, If the mule comes, are we going to give him up? Well, what else, Bay? Before I came here, I had a sort of vague idea that all we had to do was to ask for the mule and then get down to business. Just business, you know, nothing definite. I know what you mean, Tori. I wasn't much hoping to see the mule myself, but I did think we could pick up some first-hand knowledge of the mess and then pass it over to people who know a little more about this interstellar intrigue. I'm no storybook spy. You're not behind me, Bay. What a situation. You'd have never known there was a person like the mule, except for this last queer break. Do you suppose he'll come for his clown? I don't know that I want him to. They are interrupted by the sound of the airlock buzzer. 
The clown, now known as Magnifico, immediately tenses and lets out a frightened query. The mule! I've got to let him in, Bay. The door is opened, and it's not the mule or one of his men, but another standoff is initiated nevertheless. Torin keeps his blaster trained on the intruder and insists he identify himself. It is none other than Captain Pritcher, who tracked Beta and Torin back to their hangar with their new accomplice. Pritcher produces evidence of his authority and asks Torin to lower his blaster, at which point Beta intervenes. Put the blaster away, Torin, and take him at face value. He sounds like the real thing. Torin reluctantly agrees and asks why Pritcher is here. He is told that the news of the beach encounter traveled quickly, that the mule had been embarrassed by two tourists from the Foundation. He wants to understand exactly what their motives are in taking such rash action. He turns to Beta. You're from the Foundation by birth, aren't you? Am I? You are a member of the Democratic Opposition. They call it the Underground. I don't remember your name, but I do the face. You got out only recently, and wouldn't have if you were more important. You know a lot. Pritchard nods matter-of-factly. I do. You escaped with a man. That one. Does it matter what I say? No. I merely want a thorough mutual understanding. I believe that the password during the week you left so hastily was Selden, Hardin, and Freedom. Porphyrat Hart was your section leader. Beta's cool front evaporates. Where'd you get that? Did the police get him? Nobody has him. It's just that the underground spreads widely and in unusual places. I'm a section leader myself, never mind under what name. Pritchard goes on to explain that, though he sides with them as an enemy of the tyranny of the current Foundation leaders, he's been investigating an even greater threat. This mysterious figure known as the Mule is not what they think he is. That clown is the key. That clown is one of the very few that have seen him. I want him. He may be the proof I need, and I need something Galaxy knows to awaken the Foundation. It needs awakening? Against what? And in what role do you act as alarm? That of rebel democrat or secret police and provocateur? When the entire Foundation is threatened, Madame Revolutionary, both democrats and tyrants perish. Let us save the tyrants from a greater threat, that we may overthrow them in their turn. Who's the greater tyrant you speak of? The mule. I know a bit about him, enough to have been my death several times over already if I had moved less nimbly. Send the clown out of the room. This will require privacy. Magnifico. After Magnifico retreats to the galley, Pritchard quietly continues. I don't know the mule's powers or to the exact extent to what he is, what our thrillers would call a superman. But the rise from nothing to the conqueror of Calgan's warlord in two years is revealing. You see, don't you, the danger? Can a genetic accident of unpredictable biological properties be taken into account in the Selden plan? Pritchard said he wants to speak to the clown now, and they summon Magnifico. Have you seen the mule with your own eyes? I have, but too well, respected sir, and felt the weight of his arm with my own body as well. I have no doubt of that. Can you describe him? It is frightening to recall him, respected sir. He is a man of mighty frame. Against him even you would be but a spindling. His hair is of a burning crimson, and with all my strength and weight I could not pull down his arm once extended, not a hair's thickness. 
often to amuse his generals or to amuse only himself. He would suspend me by one finger in my belt from a fearful height while I chattered poetry. It was only after the twentieth verse that I was withdrawn. And each improvised, and each a perfect rhyme, or else start over. He is a man of overpowering might, respected sir, and cruel in the use of his power, and his eyes, respected sir, no one sees. What? What's that last? He wears spectacles, respected sir, of a curious nature. It is said that they are opaque, and that he sees by a powerful magic that far transcends human powers. I have heard that to see his eyes is to see death. That he kills with his eyes, respected sir. It's at about this point that Beta and Torin realize they are way over their heads. They ask Pritcher if he wants to take over. He declines and asks them to return quickly to the foundation with their prisoner. They expect the mule to attempt to retrieve Magnifico, but that he is too valuable to lose. Once in space, they see that there has been no attempt to interfere with their departure and no one following them. Torin looks at Pritcher. Looks like he's letting us carry off Magnifico. Not so good for your story. Unless he wants us to carry him off. In which case it's not so good for the Foundation. While en route to Terminus, a news report arrives stating that the new government of Calgan has made an official complaint about the forceful abduction of a member of their leader's court. Pritchard's face darkens. He's one step ahead of us after all. He's ready for the Foundation and he uses this as an excuse for action. It makes things more difficult for us. We will have to act before we are really ready. We return to Mayor Indeber's tidy office once again and meet a new player in our drama. Ebling Miss is a renowned scientist of the Foundation. In fact, so renowned, he is known only as the scientist. Due to the Foundation's reliance on science and technology for their dominance, the position of the highest-ranking scientist conferred significant privileges, and Miss was the sort of guy to take advantage of these privileges when needed. I'll let Asimov describe his entrance. Quote, when Ebling Miss decided to allow Hindber to honor him with an audience, he did not wait for the usual rigid line of command to pass his request up and the favored reply down, but having thrown the less disreputable of his two formal jackets over his shoulders and pounded an odd hat of impossible design on one side of his head and lit a forbidden cigar into the bargain, he barged past two ineffectually bleeding guards and into the mayor's palace, end quote. Apparently the guards had torn the scientist's apparel in the scuffle, and he was not at all pleased upon breaking into Inber's office. Look here, Inber, those unprintable minions of yours will be charged for one good cloak. Lots of good wear left in this cloak. Inber glares at the intruder with displeasure. It has not been brought to my attention, miss, that you have requested an audience. You have certainly not been assigned one. Galaxy Inber, didn't you get my note yesterday? I handed it to a flunky in purple uniform day before. I would have handed it to you direct, but I know how you like formality. Formality? Have you ever heard of proper organization? At all future times you are to submit your request for an audience properly made out in triplicate at the government office intended for the purpose. You are then to wait until the ordinary course of events brings you notification of the time of audience to be granted. You are then to appear properly clothed, properly clothed, do you understand, and with proper respect. Two, you may leave. 
What's wrong with my clothes? Best cloak I had till those unprintable fiends got their claws on it. I'll leave just as soon as I deliver what I came to deliver. Galaxy, if it didn't involve a Selden crisis, I would leave right now. The mention of a Selden crisis gets Mayor Inver's attention. It was well known that Ebling Miss knew more of Hari Selden's psychohistory than anyone else in the galaxy, and the possibility of a Selden crisis was the sort of thing that could not be ignored. There hadn't been a genuine crisis worthy of such a designation in a hundred years, and Inver was determined that certainly he would never have to worry himself with anything so disruptive. Now, in order to make this unauthorized interview as short as possible, make your statement in the fewest possible words. You know what I've been doing these days. Indiber sighed and informed Miss that he had been reading his reports diligently. The scientist had been investigating Selden's work as closely as possible to attempt to understand the inscrutable science of psychohistory and to hopefully trace the predicted future course of the galaxy for the Foundation's benefit. Indiber appreciated mostly that this would help him to avoid unpleasant surprises that could threaten the essential order of his world. This was the main reason he put up with the scientist's oafish and disrespectful behavior. Ebling Miss shocks Indber by telling him the reports of his work have been useless because they are filtered through a bureaucracy that only knows a fraction of what he has discovered and tells him only what he wants to hear. He has made significant new discoveries that are heretofore unknown. Indber is horrified and tells him he's committed treason to keep his work secret while Miss ignores this and leaps up and sits on the corner of his desk and explains gleefully what he's discovered. Officially, I've been trying to rebuild the science of psychohistory. Well, no one is going to do that, and it won't get done in any one century either, but I've made advances in the more simple elements, and I've been able to use it as an excuse to meddle with the time vault. What I've done involves the determination to a pretty fair kind of certainty of the exact date of the next appearance of Hari Selden. I can give you the exact day, in other words, that the coming Selden crisis, the fifth, will reach its climax. The fifth. According to Miss, there were four previous appearances by Selden in the vault. The first two we are well aware of from the second and third episodes of this podcast. On the first of those occasions, Selden had shocked the scientists preparing the encyclopedia that their work was essentially irrelevant to his aims. The second occasion was rather anticlimactic, as Selden had pretty much validated Hardin's strategy and sealed his victory over his political opponents. The last two appearances were even less exciting, as he was ignored, probably because he was not needed. One would think that the whole idea of a Selden crisis was starting to lose its mojo. After all, the Foundation had faced its greatest moment of peril a hundred years previously and defeated the Empire against all odds. It seemed there was no real concept of a genuine crisis to get riled up about. Mayor Indber had heard just about enough at this point. In his estimation, what Miss was telling him was absurd. There had been no incidents of any kind of concern that would indicate a serious crisis was coming. He picks up one of the reports on his desk and lectures Miss with it. This is a short summary I prepare myself weekly of foreign matters in progress. Listen. We have completed negotiations for a commercial treaty with Morris, continued negotiations for one with Lioness, sent a delegation to some celebration or other on Bond Day, received some complaint or other from Calgan, and we've promised to look into it, protested some sharp trade practices in Asperta, and they've promised to look into it, and so on and so on. I tell you, miss, there's not a thing here that breathes anything but order and peace. At that moment, another disturbing intrusion appears. 
which to Mayor Inber was just about the last thing he could accept in his carefully ordered life, but here it was. His secretary had entered without being summoned. The report was that the erratic Captain Han Pritcher, whom the mayor had had the unfortunate duty of reprimanding weeks before, had been apprehended and taken into custody for disobeying direct orders and now awaited execution. Those accompanying him were being held for questioning. Furthermore, Captain Pritcher had reported that the new warlord of Calgan had engaged in vaguely dangerous designs and that a full report had been filed. Indbur explodes. A full report has been received. Well, the secretary, looking extremely uncomfortable, continued. New reports had just arrived that armed ships from Calgan had been spotted entering Foundation territory and fighting had occurred. Indborough was now nearly incapacitated in confusion at the rapid turn of events, so terribly injurious to his sense of decorum. Ebling Miss calmly hopped down from his desk and informed the secretary to send Captain Pritcher to them. He turned to the apoplectic mayor. Hadn't you better get the machinery moving, Inber? Four months, you know. We now turn briefly to a conference among the traders on a planet called Radol. I won't go into a lot of detail about this conference, but I do want to share Asimov's description of the planet it is held on. Quote, It was a ribbon world, of which the galaxy boasts sufficient, but among which the inhabited variety is a rarity, for the physical requirements are difficult to meet. It was a world, in other words, where the two halves faced the monotonous extremes of heat and cold, while the regions of possible life is the girdling ribbon of the twilight zone. Such a world invariably sounds uninviting to those who have not tried it, but there exist spots strategically placed, and Radol City was located in such a one. It spread along the soft slopes of the foothills before the hacked-out mountains that backed it along the rim of the cold hemisphere and held off the frightful ice. The warm, dry air of the sun half spilled over, and from the mountains was piped the water, and between the two, Radol City became a continuous garden, swimming in the eternal morning of an eternal June. End quote. This description is fascinating to me for the fact that Asimov was so far ahead of his time. He was smart and knowledgeable enough to know that such tidally locked planets were possible and had the imagination to consider the possibility of it being settled and made into a very livable environment. It turns out that the search for exoplanets in recent years has turned up quite a few candidates for this kind of world. This is the awesome power of science fiction. The combination of scientific principles with the imagination to create scenes of exotic and majestic beauty completely unknown upon our own world. The conference being held upon this world was one of a regular series of such events in which trade agreements would be worked out, news would be shared among the visitors of politics on their respective worlds, gossip shared, relationships established, the usual kinds of stuff that accompanies regular political conferences. This one, though, was different. There was only one topic of conversation, and it was an urgent one. The mule had become a significant threat to the Foundation, and there were actually reports of losses in combat at a planet called Horlagor. Meanwhile, Toran had found some way of getting reports out secretly, despite his captivity by Foundation authorities. The most disturbing of these reports implied that the mule had developed technology beyond that of the Foundation, 
Specifically, Foundation forces were finding that at critical moments, their nuclear devices were ceasing to function. No one could imagine how the mule was achieving this, but it was obviously highly disturbing news. There was a lot of fog of war type of talk at the conference. Where was the mule getting its ships? Some shared rumors that they were being supplied secretly by trader worlds. Others wondered about the technology that had apparently been so successful in battle against the Foundation. No one doubted that the Foundation would ultimately prevail. Selden had assured them that this was the case. It was deeply ingrained in the conventional wisdom. Many hoped to take advantage of the confusion and chaos and undermine the Foundation's tyrannical government. No one seriously entertained any question the Foundation could lose. The possibility was laughable. In the midst of the conference, a representative brought more shocking news. One of the trading worlds, Memnon, had been attacked with significant casualties. The Foundation, many immediately assumed. No, it was the mule. Unprovoked and deliberate, most of the fleet had been away to back up the Foundation if needed. No landings had been reported, but the war had come to the trading worlds, and their involvement was no longer a question. Randu, one of the representatives of the Foundation, stood to make a statement. I am afraid a monster is grown that will devour all of us, yet we must fight him. Back on the Foundation homeworld of Terminus, the situation had become tense. Torin had been separated from Beta, who still retained Magnifico by her side. They had been taken to the home of Ebling Miss on the outskirts of the city. The clown was anxious and afraid of the man they were to meet there as they awaited his arrival. Surely, my lady, it would seem that even yet my body denies the knowledge of my mind and expects of others' hands a blow. There's no need for worry, Magnifico. I'm with you, and I won't let anyone hurt you. Magnifico was not assured. He had grown fond of both her and her husband and was upset about his absence. But they kept me away from you earlier and from your kind husband, and on my word you may laugh, but I was lonely for missing friendship. I wouldn't laugh at that. I was too. You have not met this man who will see us? No, but he is a famous man. I have seen him in the newscasts and heard quite a good deal of him. I think he's a good man, Magnifico, who means us no harm. But he has questioned me before, and his manner is of an abruptness and loudness that bequivers me. He is full of strange words, so that the answer to his questions could not worm out of my throat. Almost I might believe the romancer who once played on my ignorance with a tale that at such moments the heart lodged in the windpipe and prevented speech. But it's different now. We're two to his one, and he won't be able to frighten the both of us, will he? No, my lady. Ebling Miss entered, carrying a large package. Unwrapping it revealed a strangely shaped musical instrument. He turned to Magnifico. Know what this is, boy? Asimov describes the clown's enthusiastic response. Quote, Magnifico fairly hurled himself out of his seat and caught the multi-keyed instrument. He fingered the myriad knobby contacts and threw a sudden back somersault of joy to the imminent destruction of the nearby furniture, end quote. While he was thus preoccupied, Miss whispered to Beta of his hopes that the instrument might help him to pacify him sufficiently so that he might allow the mild psychic probe to be used. Aloud, he asks Beta, Ever hear a visisoner? Once, at a concert of rare instruments. I wasn't impressed. 
While I doubt you came across good playing, there are very few really good players. It's not so much that it requires physical coordination. A multibank piano requires more, for instance, has a certain type of freewheeling mentality. Myth suggests that they turn out the lights, since the visual aspects of the performance work better in the dark. The performance is described from Beta's perspective, and for possibly the first time in the series, Asimov goes all out on a poetic adventure, describing a finely tuned and composed psychedelic trip of an experience engaging all of Beta's senses. It begins with a thin, reedy sound quavering in the dark, and goes on to describe glowing blobs of color coalescing into flames and fountains and tiny figures, men and women with flaming hair, architectural wonders shooting upward, snow falling, glittering carpets, rich tones of strings and harsh cymbal crashes. It seemed to be playing in three dimensions with sound and touch experience embedded within, almost as if the performance was playing in her brain and Magnifico was plucking at the neurons in her cerebral cortex directly. But it also felt wondrous and reassuring. It was a beautiful experience, and when it was over, the sound and light effects diminished. Beta felt transformed. Magnifico grasped the instrument with delight, and it seemed he had felt the same. My lady, it is indeed of an effect the most magical. It is of balance and response almost beyond hope in its delicacy and stability. On this it would seem I could work wonders. How liked you my composition, my lady? Was it yours? Your own? My very own, my lady. The mule liked it not, but often and often I have played it for my own amusement. It was once in my youth that I saw the palace, a gigantic place of jeweled riches that I saw from a distance at a time of high carnival. There were people of a splendor undreamed of, and magnificence more than ever I saw afterwards, even in the mule's surface. It is but a poor makeshift I have created, but my mind's poverty precludes more. I call it the memory of heaven. Ebling Miss, also apparently deeply affected, shook himself to life. Here, here, Magnifico. Would you like to do that same thing for others? The clown drew back fearfully. For others? For thousands, in the great halls of the foundation. Would you like to be your own master and honored by all, wealthy and... and all that? Eh? What do you say? When assured Beta would stay close by Magnifico, he reluctantly agreed to perform. He was also persuaded to submit to a light probe, but only after Beta told him it would help to keep the mule far, far away and that he could hold her hand during the procedure. Later, we find Ebling Miss is paying another visit to Mayor Inber, and if their relationship seems strained on the first occasion, it is far worse now. Inber has grown weary of the chaos and negative reports streaming in, such an unbelievable and repellent annoyance in his carefully manicured world. And here was the great scientist he had to treat with forbearance and respect. How he hated this oafish and uncontrollable demon, but now he needed him at the same time. He felt nauseous listening to Miss talk of this ridiculous clown and his freak abilities to play some strange circus instrument. And of course the fool had gotten almost nothing of value through a psychic probe. They revealed that the mule wore special glasses and could kill with his eyes. Common knowledge already. Nothing of any strategic value. So, and how long will all this take? Your word rattling will deafen me yet. 
About a month, I should say, and I may have something for you. I may not, of course, but what of it? This is all outside Sullivan's plans. Our chances are precious little, unprintable little. Now I have you, traitor. Lie. Say you're not one of these criminal rumor mongers that are spreading defeatism and panic through the Foundation and making my work doubly hard. I see here echoes of a conflict long ago, back in the very beginning of our story. The High Commissioner of the Empire at its peak, our old friend Ling Chen, confronting Selden's predictions of doom for the Empire with the same venom and with the strong temptation to snuff it out by killing the messenger. Hari Selden had warned him over with calm and rational explanations of the personal endangerment Chen faced if he were to ignore his science. Ebling Miss was no Hari Selden by knowledge or temperament, and Inber was not the calm and effective administrator Chen had been. Miss explained in bursts and harangues that Foundation victory was no longer inevitable. They had suffered severe losses already at the hands of the mule, and the Foundation had not found answers for his mysterious methods and unknown powers. Several ships had been lost at Horlagor due to the mule's nuclear suppression technology that was only beginning to be understood. Memnon was close to falling. The Foundation was in retreat across vast swaths of the regions they had easily controlled. Edber was sputtering. By the dust clouds of space, the Foundation will win. The Foundation must win. Despite the loss at Horlagor? It was not a loss. You've swallowed that spreading lie, too. We were outnumbered and betreasoned. Indber claims the apparent loss was due to treachery behind the lines, secret cells of Democrats fed by traitor lies. They were obviously trying to take advantage of the situation and prove their position in the aftermath of the Foundation's inevitable victory, but his agents were already finding the leaders and snuffing out the treachery, and better than that... Judge for yourself. Two days ago, the so-called Association of Independent Traders declared war on the mule, and the Foundation fleet is strengthened at a stroke by a thousand ships. You see, this mule goes too far. He finds us divided and quarreling amongst ourselves, and under the pressure of his attack we unite and grow strong. He must lose. It is inevitable as always. Miss remains skeptical. After all, Selden could not have predicted a mutant. This throws all of psychohistory out of whack. Who knows the future now? But Inver is determined to spin the latest developments, desperate even, to believe that the Foundation would prevail and he could get his exploded life back under control. He reminds Miss that Selden will appear in only nine weeks. This would obviously be timed with the resolution of the crisis. He tells Miss he is dismissed, but to return for the appearance in the vault so that he could see what a fool he'd been. Get out of here and stay out of my sight for nine weeks. With unprintable pleasure, you wizened horror. An appearance by Selden in the vault was always an auspicious occasion, but the occurrence had been met with varying responses. In the first such occasion, only a few representatives of the governing authority of Terminus were present when Selden had informed the startled attendees of the true intention of the plan. In the second, the room was full to celebrate the great victory over Anacreon. The third and fourth visits, it is said, were to an empty room, Apparently, the resolution to the corresponding crises were perfunctory, or the growing autocratic nature of the government had worked to eliminate any intrusions outside their control from affecting the political discourse. On this occasion, however, 
Mayor Indeber decided the time had come to play it up. This would be a full government ceremony. I picture it like a State of the Union speech, for example. The appointed heads of state treated like royalty, while the nobility jostled for seating representative of their power. Indeber had had a specially raised chair brought in for himself, and planned a concluding speech to assure the public that all would be fully and most immaculately under his control going forward. The heads of the trader worlds were also present, as it would be necessary for them to feel the full force of the restored and confident foundation as it recovered from the strain of this nearly disastrous encounter with the mule. Randu, as representative of the trading worlds, finds his way to Inber's heavily guarded chair, and somehow succeeds in getting his attention. He is greatly displeased that the mayor has ordered trading ships to be distributed among the fleets of the foundation, and makes his complaint known. Indber rages that he is in charge of how the war is to be fought, and his order would go forward without alteration. It is dangerous to allow your people separate fleets in this emergency. Divided action plays into the hands of the enemy. We must unite, Ambassador, militarily as well as politically. You feel safe now that Selden will speak, and you move against us. A month ago you were soft and yielding when our ships defeated the mule at Terrell. I might remind you, sir, that it is the Foundation fleet that has been defeated in open battle five times, and that the ships of the independent trading worlds have won your victories for you. Randu goes on to inform the tyrant that his admirals can no longer be trusted, as several have defected to the mule in the heat of battle, and that no trader crews would submit to their authority. Indber rages and accuses Randu of treachery, and orders that he be placed under guard at the conclusion of Selden's appearance. Randu retreats to take his scene for the grand event, and sees that Torin and Beta have arrived, along with the clown, who was always near her these days. You are here after all. How did you work it? Magnifico was our politician. Inber insists upon his visisonor composition based on the time vault, with himself no doubt as hero. Magnifico refused to attend without us, and there was no arguing him out of it. Ebling Miss is with us, or was. He's wandering about somewhere. What's wrong, Uncle? You don't look well. I suppose not. We're in for bad times, Toran. When the mule is disposed of, our turn will come, I'm afraid. Beta looks up at another familiar figure and smiles. Captain Han Pritcher has arrived and greets them, bowing stiffly. He finds his seat as the crowd grows quiet, the expected moment close at hand. Magnifico, beside Beta, is extremely, even for him, ill at ease. Quote, the picture of misery and heartsick depression, his body curled up in his eternal effort at self-effacement. His long nose was pinched at the nostrils, and his large, down-slanted eyes darted uneasily about. End quote. Do you suppose, my lady, that all these great ones were in the audience, perhaps, when I played the Visisonor? Everyone, I'm sure. And I'm sure they all think you're the most wonderful player in the galaxy and that your concert was the greatest ever seen. So you just straighten yourself and sit correctly. We must have dignity. As he straightens himself, one more figure arrives in the very center of the chamber, an old man in a wheelchair with a book on his lap. I am Harry Selden. He pauses as the room falls, quote, silent, thunderous in its intensity, end quote. I do not know if anyone is here at all, 
by mere sense perception, but that is unimportant. I have few fears as yet of a breakdown in the plan. For the first three centuries, the percentage probability of non-deviation is 94.2. His familiar appearance, known to all from the famous trimensional recordings they all knew well, seemed to calm the crowd. Now the great master would explain the great moment in history. Everything would all make sense now. Let us take up the problem of the moment, then. For the first time, the foundation has been faced, or perhaps is in the last stages of facing, civil war. Till now, the attacks from without have been adequately beaten off, and inevitably so, according to the strict laws of psychohistory. The attack at present is that of a too undisciplined outer group of the foundation against the too authoritarian central government. The procedure was necessary, the result obvious. What was happening? The assembled crowd began to murmur. Indeber half rose from his chair. Beta struggled to understand the confusing message Selden was delivering. That the compromise worked out is necessary in two respects. The revolt of the independent traders introduces an element of new uncertainty in a government perhaps grown overconfident. The element of striving is restored. Although beaten, a healthy increase of democracy, many voices began to be raised. The confusion had risen to the edge of panic. Beta whispers to Toran by her side. Why doesn't he talk about the moon? The traitors never revolted. Selden continues speaking, but his nonsensical words become drowned out by the increasing uproar in the chamber. A new and firmer coalition government was the necessary and beneficial outcome of the logical civil war forced upon the foundation, and now only the remnants of the old empire stand in the way of further expansion, and in them, for the next few years at any rate, is no problem. Of course, I cannot reveal the nature of the next problem. Ebling Miss yells above the commotion to Randu, Selden is off his rocker! He's got the wrong crisis! Were your traitors ever planning civil war? We planned one, yes. We called it off in the face of the mule. Then the mule is an added feature, unprepared for in Selden's psychohistory. Now what's happened? The figure of Selden had vanished from the chamber, but also the walls had lost their faint nuclear glow. In the distance, a siren is wailing. Randu forms the impossible words. Space raid! Miss holds his nucleic space wristwatch to his ear and fails to hear its usual hum. He roars above the crowd. Stopped! By the galaxy! Is there a watch in the room that is going? Many wrists are raised and all are stunned by the silence they hear. Then something has stopped all nuclear power in the time vault and the mule is attacking! A thin wail rose from Indver's chair, desperate to regain authority. Take your seats! The mule is fifty parsecs distant! He was a week ago. Right now, Terminus is being bombarded. Beta felt choked with despair, a strange and visceral sensation of something close and thick. She could barely breathe and felt paralyzed by the force of it. Suddenly a door was thrown open and an official ran in and hastened to speak with Mayor Indber. The message was dire. Not a vehicle was running in the city. All outbound communications had been stopped and a message had been received that the 10th fleet had been defeated and the mule's ships were in low orbit preparing to enter the atmosphere. The crowd grows quiet to hear their leader's response. 
but Inver had crumpled and could barely speak. His lips move, and he mouths the word, Surrender. The crowd surges outward in panic. Ebling Miss reaches for Beta and moves her bodily toward the exit. Come, young lady, we're leaving, and take your musician with you. Magnifico. The mule, the mule is coming for me. Toran grabs the limp clown and throws him over his shoulder. I will allow the master, Isaac Asimov, to conclude the chapter. Quote, The next day, the ugly, battle-black ships of the mule poured down upon the landing fields of the planet Terminus. The attacking generals sped down the empty main street of Terminus City in a foreign-made ground car that ran where a whole city of atomic cars still stood useless. The proclamation of occupation was made 24 hours to the minute after Selden had appeared before the former might of the Foundation. Of all the Foundation planets, only the independent traitors still stood, and against them, the power of the mule, conqueror of the Foundation, now turned itself. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude the first portion of the mule. The citizens upon Terminus, and soon enough throughout Foundation space, are in psychic shock. They had so strongly cultivated the illusion of inevitable victory based upon the near-religious faith in the irrefutable predictions of their glorious patriarch, Hari Selden. Selden had shown himself to be horrifically fallible at the crucial moment, and the mule stood ascendant. Only the trading worlds remained free, and it seemed even they were doomed to fall under his authority before long. There was no guidance, no grounding for anyone now. The impossible had happened, and the citizens of the proud foundation were now conquered and miserable. We will learn the fate of the principles of this great opera when we return for part two. I'll leave you to ponder the possibilities as we move forward toward our conclusion. It's been a long episode, and we're only a third of the way through this great story, so I'll wrap things up quickly. I want to thank our newest collaborator, who contributed the voice of Beta Durrell, Amanda Kreitler, so I didn't have to spend half the episode talking like this. I think we can all appreciate what horrors she saved us from. Her husband, Zach, did a wonderful job recording her parts entirely remotely, and I look forward to their continuing contributions. Amanda has her own podcast, Severed Fate, which is associated with the Dimension Door RPG podcast, where she also contributes her voice talents. I'll include a promo for that podcast immediately after our closing music. I'd also like to thank two more listeners who have graciously become patrons of this podcast, Natalie Smith and Ulysses Brown. I'm flabbergasted to receive your support while I am still procrastinating setting up my Patreon page properly. I promise I'll get to it soon. We've also received very nice reviews from Nursing Mama 923 and Bookman Ben from Apple Podcasts USA. I really appreciate the kind words. Anyone else out there who is enjoying this podcast, please don't hesitate to let me know how you feel about it. I continue to get really good engagement on Twitter at my handle at Joel G. McKinnon and through occasional direct emails to joel at seldoncrisis.net. All of these are fine options to warm a hardworking podcaster's heart. Once more, I'd like to thank Jeremy McKinnon for sound design. Jeremy has also started a new series of YouTube renditions of the podcast, and each episode is accompanied by a striking visual treatment he has carefully selected. 
please have a look at the Selden Crisis YouTube channel when you get a chance. If you subscribe and click on the bell icon, you'll be notified when new YouTube versions are released. Thanks to Tom Barnes, as usual, for the wonderful theme music orchestration, and to Mike Topping for the great podcast logo. I still get a lot of wonderful comments about both of these. It takes some really talented people to put all this together. See you soon for part two of The Mule on Selden Crisis. summer is under threat. I spy with my little eye something big and gray. Oh man, that's a big storm cloud over there, don't you know? One group will brave the storm. Ugh, Suka, it is colder than Baba Yaga's tits out here. Literally, right now. We must use our most powerful weapon. Quick, everyone, love each other. You can listen to the adventure. If you climb in the saddle, you best be ready for the ride. Roll the dice and have some feelings with the Dimension Door podcast as they play through Paizo's Reign of Winter. Oh, except, you know, you don't actually need to roll the dice because we, we like, we, we pre-recorded this whole thing and we already rolled the dice, so. Shmerigold, no, we are recording right now. Oh, dear. Good girl, just quiet, 